Today's episode of The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media. For years, churches and religious institutions more broadly have taught us to be afraid of difference and have thrived off of us versus them, insider-outsider ideologies that do way more harm than good. Theolab believes a different conversation is possible. You can learn more by visiting theolabmedia.com. A thing that I often ask people, I ask four questions typically. Who is God for you? And that question oftentimes throws people off and they'll give the church the answer. Well, God is my provider. God is my all in all. God is my everything. Okay, but who is God for you? And it's a hard question for many people to answer. After wrestling with that, the second question is, who taught you that's who God was? Mm. Now that's deep right there. Where did you learn that? Wow. And so are you worshiping this person you name as God or this being you name as God? Or are you worshiping somebody else's conception of God? I need to write this down. The third question I ask people is, because oftentimes I ask these questions because people want to say, what do you think about gay people? What do you think about abortion? What do you think about gay marriage? What do you think about climate change? I'm not going to start there. I'm going to say, who is God for you? Who taught you that's who God was? And the third question is, what is at stake for you in X, whatever it is, climate change, gay marriage, abortion, women being in the pulpit, whatever it is. And then the last question is, what about God would change for you if what you believed about X was wrong? So if you've come in and X is gay people shouldn't get married, then my question is, what changes about God if you're wrong about that? And oftentimes those four questions do more work than anything I could ever say because the discussions, the conversations, the arguments, the debates oftentimes don't get us anywhere. Yeah. But saying, let's, no, 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 no. I know you want to talk about that, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, because what you actually want to talk about based on how you come in at me is God. So let's talk, let's start there. And that's going to tell me a whole lot about what you're able to hear and what you're able to experience. And it's not always my job to change your mind, but it is my responsibility to offer you a question and to invite you to keep asking yourself those four questions over and over and over again. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. And today it's just me and Pastor Sam kicking it on the Mourner's Bench. We are here with part three of our friendship chats, our one-on-ones, our intimate conversation series, and we are excited to share a little bit more about the origins of our friendship and how we've learned to navigate across our differences, particularly in terms of our sexual orientations. And it's just me and Sam, so you know we are bound to get just a little bit preachy, but we won't do too much. Well, I won't do too much. I really can't speak for Sam. But before we get into that, a quick reminder, we are still gearing up for our first ever New Year's Eve altar call extravaganza on December the 31st. We'll be bringing you an hour-long altar call. It has been a really, really long year, and there are lots of people, places, churches, political parties, ideas, and things that need to repent for all the ways they helped to make 2020 a living hell. Killer Hornets will be on the mourner's bench. 
We'd love for you to participate in our first annual year-end altar call. We've already gotten a lot of feedback. I was really surprised by that. So thank you so much um, to each and every one of you who have contributed so far. Um, It's bound to be a really lively show. And everyone is placing Mitch McConnell on the bench for being Mitch McConnell, but we really want you to add your voice. So to do that, send an email to what's up at the theolab.com, letting us know who you want to put on the mourner's bench and why. Write as much as you want. No fewer than three sentences, please. And based on the submissions we've received so far, I should also say no more than three paragraphs. Um, I'm really kidding. Um, actually, the longer ones are the funniest ones. I just didn't anticipate this much energy. Y'all are really coming through and we love it all. I think that's it for our reminders today. So, Sam, let's get on into it. It's the black day. <laughs> <laughs> we finally got rid of the white people. Wow. <laughs> and the world is a better place. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I may have some thoughts about that. I don't know if the world's a better place. You know, because sometimes I'm like, yeah, let's get rid of all the white people and, and let's just have black people. And then sometimes I'm around black people. and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> what in the hell is wrong with y'all? So I don't know. It's just a people problem. We just need to not have people around. <laughs> around. Uh, somebody asked me, are you not a morning person? I said, I think I'm just not an earth person. <laughs> I need to go back to my planet. Where are you going? What, what, what is your planet? Now I'm curious. I, I really don't know. If we were to have any white people to stick around, I would keep Malcolm and KT Oh, around. yeah, definitely. Malcolm and KT are, are two of the good ones. I, know, I still don't know if they're good white people, but I think they're people that I would at least... <laughs> If we had to, like, you remember that sketch, the race draft that they did a long time ago? With Dave Chappelle. With Dave Chappelle, yeah. If we had to have the race draft, I would, like, they would be on the top of my list. If I had to have a white person. Yeah, and there's a few black people I would definitely trade for them. Like, (laughs) they can have Clarence Thomas. Thomas, You can have Kanye. Ben Carson. You can have Ben Carson. Herman Cain's ghost. Candace Owens. What's that woman from Clueless? Uh, Nash. Stacey Stacey Dash. Dash. Nash Dash. I don't know one of them. They can have her. All of them. They can have them. And we'll take Malcolm and KT. Yep. That's all we take, though. Yep. Sam, who are you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I. Who am I? Hmm. I think I'm still figuring that out. I think that's a lifelong, <laughs> that's a lifelong journey. But I would say I'm my mother's son. I, I'm my father's son, too. Don't you get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a daddy's son, but um, my mother raised me. I'm I'm not a mama's boy, but I'm my mama's son. I love my mom. I'm this crazy black Baptist preacher from rural Alabama who moved to the big city of Atlanta. And really, so much of my world, my life has changed, has evolved. Hmm. You know, I come from like conservative theological backgrounds. I came from women can't preach and gays are going to hell and you know all of these all of these theological assumptions and traditions layered over the top of me and I've kind of broken out of all of that over the course of the last decade and a half and so who am I I don't know you still figuring it out like I'm we all still are. figuring it out what I hear is and maybe this isn't true for you but what I hear is there's something about geographic location place that changed you right so you we're raised in Alabama, Baymanette, with all ten citizens of Baymanette. Wow, it's about <laughs> it's about eight thousand people. In oh, Bay really? Manette. And and there's a Walmart. Okay, and that's it. 
No. Is there a Target? There are smaller stores. Mm-hmm. Mom and pop shops. Walmart is the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have them all? Um, we have a McDonald's <laughs> and a Hardee's. Hey, we've got some stuff, man. Do y'all have a club? Of course, there are clubs. Like real clubs? No. I didn't think so. Like but- hole in the wall. <laughs> you you don't know nothing about no hole in the wall. You come from Nashville, now you're in Atlanta. You don't know anything about a hole in the wall. But anyway. For me, my experience has been that place geographic location has played an essential role in my formation. So I'm yeah. curious, is it Atlanta as a city, as a place that changed you? And if so, what about Atlanta changed you or expanded you? Was it the place? Was it the people? What was it? It wasn't geography alone. It wasn't just moving from small town to big city. It was the experiences that came along with that. Mm. So I moved to Atlanta to attend seminary. And seminary played a a major role in that evolution, in being exposed to different thoughts, different ways of thinking, different ways of being. When I was in seminary, I traveled to Brazil, I traveled to Israel and Palestine, traveled to South Korea, traveled to South Africa. And my world instantly became 10 times bigger. How I viewed people, how I viewed God instantly was magnified by a hundred times. And that very small worldview that I had in Baymanette, Alabama was erased. Hmm. I think moving to Atlanta was a part of it, but it was so much more than just the city of Atlanta. It was, it was the experiences that also accompanied it. So Brandon, mm-hmm. why are we friends? I don't know. <laughs> Next question. Next question. Next question. <laughs> what is it? What is it you like about me? I like this. I get to ask some real important questions about about you. About you can make them all about you. Yep. <laughs> no, but seriously, why are we still friends? I mean, I, I'm not saying that I don't know why we're still friends, but we were friends early in my seminary journey before you came out. I'm this Baptist black preacher from Alabama who comes from all of these you know, different things and we're still friends and we're still good friends. Like you, I would, I would take a, I don't know if I'd take a bullet from you. Like you I would duck, you would, you would I would run. dodge would. the bullet. I would let someone shoot at me, but, but you would I wouldn't dodge it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just take it. But you tell me to move as well? Yeah, I would push you out of the way, but I would also avoid the hit okay, as well. Okay. So you're not going to let me die. I'm not going to let you die, but I damn sure ain't going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I will not take a bullet for you. The challenge for me is I don't have a lot of people that I call friends and I don't use that word loosely. Like for me to call somebody a friend is significant. A lot of times people will be like, hey, your friend, da, da, da. and I'll be like, oh yeah, my associate. Disrespectful. <laughs> like that's a different category. Disrespectful. <laughs> I'm not certain what initially drew us together. I think we had shared work. Yeah. We were both engaged in similar work professionally and I think that provided a foundation. In, in many instances for me, it, it is professional relationships that turn into the deepest friendships that I have. One of the most significant moments in our friendship is when Eric Garner's murderer was acquitted and there were no charges. And I remember um, in that season, you were a student and I was a staff person there. And so there was a way in which we shouldn't have been friends, right? By, by some standards, people who approach their work differently would say that we shouldn't have been friends, but we still did have this professional overlap because you also worked in the office as well. But I remember in that particular space, I felt like part of my call was to be present for black people. There was not another black man on the staff at that institution at the time. 
And so there was a pastoral way that I approached all of my work. And I remember the non-indictment comes across my screen and I'm having my own emotional reaction in response to that. And I left the office to go take a walk on campus. And before I could get out the door, I run into you and our friend Alicia Gordon having your own emotional processes. But from that moment was birthed this die-in, this action, this political action that happened on a university campus that was transformative for that community. White supremacy functions, it's designed to make us fearful and scared about everything all of the time. And so for me, everything that I did was scrutinized, but in that moment, I just didn't care. And I knew that there was something that was needed for students, staff, and faculty at the institution. I remember you, Alicia, and others planning this die-in, this political action on this campus. And it was intriguing to me the ways that white people tried to subvert that white people who were well-intentioned, progressive liberal white people, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's no, there's no way to keep things a secret and everybody was talking about it. And, oh, they're going to interrupt chapel. Oh, they're going to do this. Oh, they're going to do that. And I was like, y'all chill. And so there was a role that I tried to play on the back end that kept that away from you all, right? The dean of worship wanted to know what was happening so that she could control it. That was the impulse. Yeah. And the dean of admissions wanted to know what was happening so that she could help them control it. And the dean of student life wanted to know what was happening. And again, the, their posture was always, these, these are all white women, but their posture was, we just want to know so we can figure out how to support. But their support was coming in the form of control. I developed a deeper appreciation and gratitude for you and the work that you were doing to lead in the community. And I didn't necessarily view myself as a co-leader of that, but I viewed myself as somebody that was there to support you. At that time, that was at least the 10th person that had been killed by the police and had been in public. And there were ways that we were stepping on each other's toes. It wasn't just the white folks who was uh, trying to step in and, you know, quote unquote, help control. Uh, but it was also black folks. It was like, well, I think we need to do this. I think we need to do that. I want to do that. I want And people was trying to hijack shit. And I'm like, how are you going to steal these graphics? And I was like, hey, y'all need to talk. I still remember the night before this this political action, you calling me. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think it was a message. I think you called me. I did. And you said, hey, man, you need to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. These are, other, these are other black folks who are just as passionate, just as concerned about the issues that were happening at the time. You said you need to talk to these folks because they, they're about to hijack, their, not just hijack, like there's about to be this collision. Yeah. There's about to be this, this, this crazy thing that happens because everyone's not on the same page. Yeah. And, um, but I appreciate the way you did it. You, you basically just called knowing that that we had already started a ball rolling and that I was kind of trying to lead, lead some of that. And you was like, hey, man, you, this is happening behind the scenes. You probably need to, to check on it and to address it. And for me, that's a huge value in friendship. Like, right, like yeah. the ability to look out for others' best interest, even when it doesn't benefit you personally. Yeah. Because you could have easily been like, that ain't my, I ain't got nothing to do with that. You know, like, y'all figure that out. You know, but but I think um, the way that you handled that, I was like, this is, a, this is a real friend. I like this guy. I mean, I had known you for about two years then, but I think that was the moment that I decided that I liked you. <laughs> when I helped you out. <laughs> I know, but I think that's the moment that I, I developed a respect for you. And I think respect is a precursor for friendship for me because one of the ways that I do live my life is to say, I get that there are societal expectations and that whiteness wants our bodies, our minds, our persons, our spirits to operate in certain ways. And that's cute, but I'm not going to do that. 
I perceived in you in that moment the same sort of commitment to say, I get that I serve in this capacity. I get that I'm in this role. I get that this is unconventional, but this is what needs to happen in this space. For me, friendships are about spaces for having like people to check in, people to develop intimacy with, but it's also about, can I trust you in the moment to show up? Like who are the people, if, if we got 50 people in the room and shit pops off, who's the person that I can look at and they can look at me and we ain't got to say too much, but we immediately start working in tandem. Yeah. And I feel like that day that happened yeah. around that. And we didn't cultivate that. Yeah. It just happened. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's one way I think I started to consider you somebody that I would call a friend. It took me till yesterday to actually call you friend, but. Whatever. <laughs> what you just explained happens so organically between you and me. Whether we coordinate, whether we talk, we might have to get this, the, the right understanding, what's going on, what's happening. But as, as soon as we understand what the vision is, what the plan is, we're almost never bumping heads. Yeah. And, and that's not necessarily, you know, like some people will say, well, if you've got friendships and y'all always agree. I'm not saying we always agree. No, we don't. But it's never adversarial. Yeah. You know? It's not a competition. It's not a competition. No. I mean, like we are always trying to make each other better or trying to see how we can support each other. And I'm like you, I can count on two hands maybe how many people I call a friend. I remember at our previous employer, you had this moment where you actually, I don't don't know if I'll call it an epiphany, but you you had this moment that you realized something about yourself and and you wanted to start living in that truth, right, that you were were gay, that you were a homosexual, as you would say. (laughs) You can't say it. I can't say it. I know, I know, I know. It's better. It's only okay when I say it. Edit that out or leave it. Either way. (laughs) I'm going to leave it. But you, but I think I was the second person that you told. You told me I was the second person that you told. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down. I think in the admissions office, I believe, at the school we were working at. And before you even told me this, in my mind, being this black Baptist preacher, I had made a commitment no matter. And even at this point, I had my evolution was well underway. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. I wasn't the same Baptist preacher that I was growing up in my early 20s who was super conservative and arguing with people about whether women could preach. I was this like crazy far out Baptist preacher that would be considered a heretic in most Baptist churches. Mm -hmm. I would still consider you a heretic in most Baptist churches. Before you even started talking because of the connection and the friendship that I had with you, there was nothing that you, if you had a, if you had told me I killed somebody last night, I would be like, okay, let's figure out our next steps. You know, I, okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hide the would body or nothing. <laughs> I wouldn't turn you in. I would convince you to turn yourself in. <laughs> I wouldn't turn it. And after you, after it got to a certain point where I would be accountable with you, then I would turn you in. I'd be like, okay. We can't go no further. I ain't going to jail, but <laughs> just know if I ever kill somebody, I would implicate you to the point that you would have to go turn yourself in with me. I ain't going to jail alone. <laughs> see, that's why. See, I take back everything that I've seen. <laughs> I would never kill anyone. But no, I, and 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 I realized that. And when you told me, when you said the the story of your coming out is hilarious and maybe you'll tell people this one day uh we we don't have time to go through all that now but uh so first it was comical and i was laughing um but i i wanted to support you in any way that i could in that moment because you are to me family and a brother and a friend and i instantly knew that you wouldn't have all the support you needed from others mm-hmm. 
And I wanted to make sure that that was never the story between us, mm-hmm. that every step along your journey, you could look back and say, Sam was supportive. Sam was there. Sam, you know, I never questioned yeah. whether he was genuinely in my corner. And it's going to always be that way. If you had asked me and said, Sam, I want you to perform my wedding, or I want you to do that, that may have had some implications for me and some of the people in my circle, but I was like, whatever, like, this is my brother. You were ordained after that. It was a redo. You were reordained after that. <laughs> That's a different segment. Uh, <laughs> um, and I gave the charge at your ordination. You did. Um, and some of the people who ordained me mm-hmm. would have had a fit. Yeah. Had they known that I was giving the charge at an openly gay person's ordination. Mm-hmm. But I didn't care. Yeah. Because of the relationship that we have together. We can save the coming out story for a whole another episode or a whole another <laughs> podcast. But I mean, I think for me, the shortest thing is I wanted it to be ordinary. Yeah. Um, not because those aren't special moments, but I think there's a way in which we exceptionalize gay people telling yeah. their stories and telling their truths. And we do so in a manner that makes it this big thing. So I would just text people, hey, yo, so we got a meeting on this day. We got to connect on that date. I'm going to bring some beer. Oh, yeah. And I'm a homosexual. No April Fool's. <laughs> 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 I mean, and I would, I mean, and I think... The only so I think that's how I tried to proceed, and I think even in our conversation, I was like, "Just need you to know, yeah, I'm gay." Like, wh- whatever. Like for me, it was like for whatever closet may have existed around me, it was a glass closet, and the door was wide open, right. and people who knew me well shouldn't have been surprised. I'm one who says that you can't know something about someone until they know it for themselves and claim it for themselves. But you can have insight, you can have a perception, um, you can perceive something, and there's a way that you can do that pastorally and in a human way. All right, let's take a break. Hey again, friends. Are you enjoying what you're hearing on the Mourner's Bench so far? Well, Field Lab Media, our sponsor, is gearing up to bring you even more amazing content in 2021. We are excited to share more with you soon. To be the first to know what's coming up, visit our website, fiolabmedia.com to sign up for our monthly newsletter that we'll start sending in January of 2021. It's hard to believe that that's coming up already. And if you want to give a little love offering to help support the work, please visit our Patreon to show support financially. Just visit patreon.com slash fiolabmedia to drop your offering in the basket. All right, let's get back to our discussion. But I am curious to hear you talk more about either what was at stake for you in solidifying your friendship with me? What did you think would be at stake? Because it's not the case that, at least in my life, there aren't too many straight black men who I have a deep relationship with. I think a lot of that has to do with hypermasculinity. It has to do with our socialization and the assumption that every gay man wants to fuck every man on the planet. It's not true. In the past, I have felt like there's this tiptoeing I've had to do when I've desired friendship and intimacy with straight black men. Now, I gave that up a long time ago. I don't tiptoe anymore. If you know me, you know me. And if you think I want to fuck you, ask me and I'll just tell you yes or no. And we don't have to let that be a barrier between our friendship. In the past, I have felt like I've had to filter that. And I don't think I've ever felt like I've been required to filter myself or tone down my sexual orientation and my desires. Like it's natural quote unquote, for straight black men to be like, hey man, you see that fat ass? Hey man, she got a whatever open and she got a, you know, thin white stick, but whatever. And that's Is that all- the voice today? Hey, hey man, yeah, that's, 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 that's the voice. That's my hypermasculine <laughs> voice. 
I love the hypermasculine <laughs> <laughs> football sports ass vagina. <laughs> Wow. But 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 gay men don't have that same courtesy in those spaces. I can't go to the barbershop and be like, oh, <laughs> because everybody can be like, what? Anyways, what I'm trying to ask is what has been at stake for you in our friendship and or in what ways has the way that I've come to be um, a human been challenging for you, if at all? That's an interesting question. Interesting because I think there are still people in my life who are important to me whose worldview is detrimental to you. Mm -hmm. And the complexity of relationships means I don't throw any of you away. But how do I navigate that reality? So I think that's why I say the question is interesting. I don't hide the fact that I have a friend named Brandon Maxwell who is gay. And I think one of the things that brings me to that, to this space, is, is really my theology. Hmm. It's really coming to a place in my own journey in life that I understand, I would say, the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and the way God accepts all God's creation. So this is challenging, not just for folks who are friends of mine who are gay, but for friends of mine who are Muslim, friends of mine who are atheist, friends of mine who don't fit neatly into this Christian, this conservative interpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, I've argued with family. I've barred with my mom on issues about, about Islam. I've, I mean, I've talked about, and I'm not, I'm not going to give an inch. I'm not going to yield. So I find that when I'm talking to many Christian people or religious people more broadly, that there is this one thing that is the center of their faith. It's the presenting theology or doctrine, ideology around which everything else is organized. I think for many conservative Christians, that is pro-life, pro-choice and making sure that we don't have abortions or marriage meeting between one man and one woman and not ever loving and welcoming fully Stephen, Adam, and even Yvette. I hear some of what you're saying as the sovereignty of God and God's acceptance, knowledge, of everything, everyone, everybody as being the center point of your faith around which everything else is organized. Would that be a fair reflection? I think that's a fair reflection. I think a lot of the boundaries, a lot of the judgments, a lot of the things that we introduce into our relationships are created by us. Mm -hmm. And either through our very flawed interpretation of scripture, Mm-hmm. or through our limited experience and exposure or our own indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And when we, when I pull back and try to view God and who God is, my understanding of God as creator is that God is, is, is of God's embrace of all of God's creation. And I don't see failed creation because a man loves a man. I don't see flawed creation because someone chooses uh, Muhammad uh, or, or, or um, regards Muhammad higher than Jesus or, or, or refers to God as Allah or chooses to believe that the universe is the inspiring force in the world. I believe that God chooses us from above. We don't choose God from below. And in yielding that power to God, 
I try not to incorporate or introduce all of those limitations around creating relationships based on, oh, your sexual orientation or your religion or, or all of that because we are shared creation. Yeah. I feel like I have an obligation in my desire as a Christian to want to please God. I have an obligation to love you unconditionally, indiscriminately with everything that I can, regardless of any of all those other factors. One of the things that came up as you were talking is this notion of a privatized theology. And really what it is, is a power theology, right? There are all these, at least in Southern black circles, there are all these little quips that we have about God. God don't make no mistakes. Right. And we pull that out to talk about why gay people shouldn't be welcomed into the church, welcomed as humans and have access to everything to which everyone else has access. And why can't that also be turned on its head, right? right. Like why, if, if, if what you're saying and contending is God don't make no mistakes, why does that not apply to me? Correct. Right? Why does it not apply to someone who is trans identified? How expansive are our theologies? I had a professor one time, Mark McIntyre at Belmont University, and he was the first person who I heard give a clear articulation of a theological perspective on same-sex marriage. And he said, when I read the Hebrew Bible, when I read the New Testament, the message that I hear louder than anything else is not about being right or wrong. It's about what it takes to love one another. It's about a creator that loves us. And so... If I have to be right and hateful, I can't practice that faith. Mm. I would rather be loving and wrong. Wow. Because I believe that love is what's going to redeem us all. You're anyway. preaching, sir. That was Mark McIntyre. I'm just hey quoting. See, so I mean, Good and God. I think so much of our faith these days, at least in my experience, has been about being right. Even with progressive liberals, we want to be right. Here's what you have to say. Here's what you have to sing. Here's what you have to do in the call to worship in order to be a part of this religious community. And it's like, yeah, you've just gone to the other side of the coin. It's not about what you do and what you say. I mean, it is. Ultimately, your desire to love and organize everything around God's sovereignty or even God's love should result in a certain way of life. But I find that what we often focus on and I, it's interesting to, to still say we, because I don't know if I still consider myself fully a part of the Christian religious tradition proper. You ain't no Christian. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a follower of Jesus, if anything. And even with that, right? On it, Tuesdays. <laughs> uh, just, just for today. No, I, I, no, today's Monday. Oh, shit. So I guess not today. <laughs> but I think there, I know that there's a way that Christian churches form me, but it's hard to identify as a part of those communities because of this very thing. I actually don't care about being right. I actually don't care if you believe gay people should be married. I don't care if you think that a gay person is going to be sitting next to you in heaven. I don't care. What I care about is how is that made manifest in your life? And how do you reflect the love of God and the love of Christ who sat at a table with strangers, who sat at a table with folks who did not think like him, Mm -hmm. who should not have been together? How are you reflecting that by thinking correctly? And nine times out of 10, people aren't. You put on your preacher voice. Well, Mm. you know, honestly, Brandon, I think I'm more of a humanist than I am a Christian. Mm -hmm. Again, I swear, if if my childhood pastor was alive, he might ask for my credentials. He's rolling over in his Uh, grave. (laughs) He is beating on the hood of his casket, uh, trying to get out. 
I I spent some time in in um, Cape Town, South Africa, with uh, Professor John DeGrucci. Oftentimes, I try to name drop every now and then because I want folks to know I've been somewhere and I know some people. Come on, uh, baby, Dick. Come on, baby, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he 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 regards himself, and I think he writes extensively about Christian humanism, and it caused me to reflect. And I actually wrote about this in seminary before I went and spent time with him. And, and realizing my time in South Africa that he had the vocabulary to articulate what I was feeling. Because I, be, I believe kind of in, 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 in the way, I don't want to go, I don't want to get too deep in theology, but this might help somebody. This might deliver somebody today. My seminary journey taught me, especially through Karl Barth, I think I realized in seminary that God is just too much for us to fully comprehend in our human capacity. And any attempt for us to know God, I believe, has to come in the relationships that we have with each other. So I believe the way that we get to God is not vertically, you know, like we, we think that, you know, it's from here to heaven. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, I got I to gotta work on my relationship with God and I got to get right with God. And I just don't think in our human capacity that that is possible. Yeah. I think that the way we do that, the way we experience God, the way we see God yeah. is in our relationships with each other. I say it's horizontally. It's in the relationships that we create with yeah. one another. That's where God is made manifest in this earth. And so I will go to church with the best of them and the rest of them and shout and talk and tongue. I love church. I love that experience. I love the excitement. I love the way that we praise and the way that we worship. Um, but scripture even tells us, you can't say you love God what? who you have not seen and hate your siblings who you see every day. Yeah. You like the language that I use there, don't you? I see, I see you sibling. Pain. I see you okay. sibling. Good job. Uh, <laughs> Come on, growth. <laughs> and so for me, there is no access to God without each other. Yes. You can't, you can't have a strong enough prayer life. Mm. You can't, you know what I'm saying? You can't pray in the spirit hard enough Boy. that you just invite God in and you and God just have your own thing. It, it does not exist uh -huh. apart from the rest of God's creation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think for me, like, this is what, where some of my more conservative Christian friends get really confused because I am honest. And I oftentimes will say I'm either a humanist Christian or a Christian humanist. And that's the thing that most closely reflects any sort of theological or religious perspective that I have. But what I also am is a textualist. I believe in reading a text and reading it well and attempting to read it for what the author is trying to convey. You're like the Neil Gorsuch of. Uh, okay, <laughs> maybe I will, not that. I will maybe fight not. You. <laughs> you will not put me next to Amy Coney Barrett. Not today. The devil is a liar. <laughs> Textualist may not be the right word, but I, I'm someone who takes the Bible seriously. Yeah, right. Not literally. Not literally. But seriously. But seriously. There's a distinction. There is a distinction. I'm not sitting there like, oh, okay, this is what the Lord. The Lord wants me to go sit on a dung right. heap, just like Job. Brandon, that's not my call right now. God, <laughs> please don't make it my call. Like, <laughs> but I think reading scripture, what we're describing actually is Jesus. Yes. There are multiple, we, we, we try to conflate everything into one little box and say, boom, here's how Jesus was. But the reality is if you read Christian scripture and you just read the gospels, each of the four authors of the gospels had a different agenda. Mm -hmm. 
they had something different they were trying to prove. They incorporate different characters and stories to try to illuminate something different about who Jesus was. And the image that I love of Jesus, the image that I love most of Jesus is the son of man, the human one. Yes. We, we like to focus on the Lord of heaven, but not focus on the Lord of earth. Jesus didn't come to inaugurate a new religion. Jesus came to be the human one mm. and to show us what it meant to not let religious doctrine believe sectarianism, cults get in the way of our relationship to God. And the way that he did it for the, all the Christian people who listen and want to take the Bible seriously, he did it by sitting down with other people. He did it by sitting at the table with folks who were not like him. Jesus showed us what it meant to love God. And if you desire to love God, you have to do so. And you, if, if you desire to love God and call yourself a Christian, the only way for you to do that faithfully based on what you say only is way. to follow Jesus. I always give this analogy about the limitations, our human limitations of understanding or I like the word comprehending yeah. God. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, when we were little, uh, we, we are 90s, we're 80s babies, but we we grew up in the 90s. I'm a 70s baby. You are not. <laughs> but I remember when we would watch a movie on VHS. Yeah. And they always gave you this thing at the beginning. And they wanted to let you know that this movie has been formatted to fit your TV screen. Come on. The reason being is because the technology that they used to produce the movies outpaced the technology that we had in our homes to watch it. Uh-huh. And so they were trying to let you know. You I'm about to preach. To, I'm about to preach. Why you always try to preach? I'm a preacher. Why you the so organ? They, they were trying to let you know mm-hmm. that the way that we, that, that basically that, you, that you're not seeing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have we have changed this picture so that you can see it on your TV screen. So what actually happened with the technology is the picture was much wider. Uh-huh. And so when they when they created a movie and you saw it on your TV screen, there were parts of that picture that did not display. And for me, that summed up our relationship with God very succinctly. What we're seeing, what what we see, it, it, the limitation is not with God. Right? The limitation is with us. It's our TV screen that's not seeing the full picture. Mm-hmm. And I feel like God and God's infinite wisdom and God's graciousness said, uh, because you can't comprehend me, I will pour myself in another form to meet the limitations of your ability to comprehend. And so I will send you Jesus, as you said, Jesus came down to be human. The human to one. To be human. Yes. Because we needed to comprehend. Yeah. Because we needed to be able, we needed to understand what and who God was and how do we access God in our limitation. And Jesus comes in and shows us what that looks like. And at every juncture, Jesus goes at it with other humans. With other humans. Anytime Jesus is like, hey, I'm about to go be with my father, my parent. <laughs> Anytime he took somebody come, with him. Come, Mount of Transfiguration. Hello. I'm going to take you three. The, you know, every time. Even, even, even to the point of death. Mm-mm-mm. Right? It, the, in the moment when Jesus is dying because of the sin of an oppressive system, and an ignorant people who had no desire to love one another, he looks over to somebody else who's been judged, who's been accused, 
who's been beat, maimed, convicted, tried. And he says, hey, man, it's you and me. Hey, sis, it's you and me. Hey, sibling, it's you and me. We're going to be together in paradise because we ain't got to deal with this bullshit no more. That's what Jesus said on the cross. Y'all didn't hear that part. They wrote that out. That is a wrap on today's episode. Thank y'all for listening. Oh, my God. There goes my seven. Y'all. <laughs> to keep up with the Mourner's Bench, just hit that subscribe button at the top of the page. And you know the drill. If you happen to be listening in Apple Podcast, please rate and review the Mourner's Bench. The full cast will be back next Tuesday to wrap up our Advent conversations. We'll be talking about love and why it is impossible to claim you love God when you don't even love yourself. Ooh, you thought I was going to say neighbor. Mm-mm. I said yourself, honey. It's going to be good. I just might have a Baptist fit. Y'all best be ready now. All right. That's it. Peace. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play. <laughs> and we ride on them things like every day. <laughs>